Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kia ora and welcome to Our Changing World on RNZ National with me, Alison Balance. Happy birthday to Scott Base and Antarctica New Zealand, who are celebrating 60 years of science on ice this year. In 1958, the Commonwealth Transantarctic Expedition crossed Antarctica via the South Pole, with Sir Edmund Hillary leading the famous dash to the pole on Massey Ferguson tractors. The preparations had begun many months earlier, and in January 1957, the New Zealand contingent had just finished building Hut A, a.k.a. Hillary Hut, which still stands at what is now Scott Base. Now, 1957 was also International Geophysical Year, which set a firm foundation for science down on the frozen continent. So tonight, we're featuring a couple of scientists who work there, as well as a supporting cast of genuine Antarctic starfish. But we're not actually broadcasting from Antarctica. I'm off to meet Miles Lemire from the University of Otago and Antonio Garcia from the University of Brussels in a special room at the Portobello Marine Laboratory near Dunedin where the starfish are being kept in Antarctic-like conditions. So we've come into a room full of glass-fronted fridges so we can see them. Do you want to describe the setup to me? So we've got the five experimental fridges, right, and each fridge will be at a slightly different temperature. So the one there is actually our coldest and that's going to be around ambient temperature, so below zero degrees. And this one will be around plus 0.5. Yeah. This will be one degree warmer, all the way up to about two and a half degrees warmer. Uh, three, and a half. Three, three and a half degrees warmer. So we've got this experimental gradient in temperature. And then with, within each fridge, you can see we've got two duplicate systems. And one will have normal pH seawater in it. And then this one here is going to have the pH dropped by about 0.3 pH units using those pH controllers up there. And each each fridge has eight experimental tanks. So there's eight tanks which actually contain the starfish. And in each of those tanks are 12 starfish. And the starfish are about 10 centimetres across. So they're not huge starfish. So then what we do is that in three months' time we harvest some of the adults and we'll see what the condition of the, condition of the adults are. And then we'll do that in another three months. So we'll be able to get a picture on how the adults are are acclimating or adapting or how they're changing. Can you paint a picture for me about the place the starfish have come from? So the seafloor in Antarctica where these things live, what's it like? So they came from various sites in McMurdo Sound, which is the sound where Scott Base is located. And they came up from a depth of around between 10 and 20 metres. Quite a diverse ecosystem, so lots of sponges, um, lots of other invertebrates, so large Nemertian worms, lots of anemones, not so many fish. Antarctica is renowned for having very few fish species because they were lost during the cooling. And these starfish are one of the key invertebrate groups down there. They, they carpet the sea floor in places like under seal colonies or penguin colonies where there's lots of faecal material coming from those colonies. The starfish tend to be in huge numbers. And the water temperature is below zero. That's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, it's so it is. So seawater freezes at minus two because it's got the salt. And McMurdo Sound is as cold as seawater gets anywhere on the planet, minus 1.96 degrees. That's as cold as seawater can get before it starts freezing. And in fact, it is freezing. So if you put equipment down there, there's rocks, there's ice crystals in the water column. So there's ice everywhere, very dangerous for organisms that live there. Hence, fish have antifreeze proteins, for example. Invertebrates don't need antifreeze proteins because they're isoosmotic with seawater. So they're the same salinity as seawater. So they have the same freezing temperature. So as long as the seawater's not freezing, they're not going to freeze. Very interesting physiologies, cold adapted physiologies, interesting larval stages. They're very, very long-lived larval stages that are in the water column for maybe a year, which is phenomenal for an invertebrate to have a larval stage that long-lived in the water column. Well, shall I grab one out of the fridge and we can have a look at it? And, yes, uh, please. That'd be yeah. great. Take it on a little tropical holiday for a few minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they are really also very long-lived animals. So that animal that he is handling, maybe 20, 30 years old, it's just about 7 centimetres across, but they live very long lives and it's not, they grow very slowly. So, so it's brick red on its back and a yellowish on its belly. Yeah, so... It, it just looks like a starfish, really, doesn't it? It looks like a cushion star that you would find in New Zealand, but it's quite spongy, it's quite soft. Oh, that's very soft. Yeah. That's not what I was expecting. No. Why is it so soft? Because cold water is a place where it's difficult to calcify, so these aren't very heavily calcified. You know, starfish have got little ossicles, so calcified carbonate elements in their skin, and they've got calcified spines and that, but because it's hard to calcify in cold water, these aren't. You know, they're not doing it very much, so they're quite spongy. Other invertebrates, like sea urchins, are very thin and brittle because they also calcify, and mollusk bivalves as well, very thin shells. Um, yeah, so as Antonio said, this one may be 20 or 30 years old. Some of the bigger ones may be 50 to 100 years old, they think. They're not really sure, but they certainly will be long-lived. Well, the big question, why are you interested in them? We work mainly on uh, trying to, to see how... Uh, polar species are going to uh, face uh, global warming, global change in general. So basically, uh, we are trying to focus on this key species that is all over the southern ocean, and we want to see how resilient they are to warming and ocean acidification. So we brought all of them here to try to do a long-term experiment where we can keep them for about 18 months, the thing of taking them for so long is, is because they are slow developers, so they, are, they, they adapt, they acclimate very slowly to the new conditions, and also because we want to check uh, whether the next generation coming from these animals that have been kept here have a, a higher capacity to uh, sustain these changes in the environment. So in 18 months, some of them will be uh, spawned, we, we will get the offspring of them, and we are going to get them into the into the same treatments that we have the adults of warming and acidification, and we are going to see what are the limits and if those improve after the treatments of the adults or not. So the idea is that perhaps the next generation, the offspring, might be a little more resilient than the parents. Exactly. That's the, the focus. If we can see that the, either the adults provide the younglings with uh, more resources so they can do better, or if they, have, they are going to transfer some adaptations like turn on and turn off certain genes so the, the offspring can do better in the new conditions. So tell me a bit more about this theory that the offspring might be better adapted than parents. 
It's a process called transgenerational plasticity. So there's a slight difference between a generation, there's some plasticity in the phenotype, and that could be one way in which animals can adapt. So you produce offspring which are slightly better adapted to the new environment than the parents were. Yeah. And then if you do that over successive generations, you know, they can maybe move, they can adapt as the climate or the marine environment changes over time. Yeah, Antarctica is a really interesting place to look at climate change for a couple of reasons. One is, as a region, it's going to become undersaturated with something called aragonite within the next 15 years. So aragonite is the calcium carbonate which is incorporated into things like corals and some bivalves, so it's, it's their form of calcium carbonate. So we better perhaps back up a second. So this yeah. is another consequence of climate change. Yeah. So, so increasing levels of CO2. Yeah. So there's warming, and Antarctica is going to warm by maybe two, three degrees in the next century. And then there's the other issue of acidification. So carbon dioxide moving into the ocean, changing the carbonate chemistry. And one of the outcomes is that um, aragonite or calcium carbonate becomes less and less saturated, and then it'll eventually become undersaturated, which you could think of as a time when shells may dissolve, you know, it becomes very difficult to produce a shell. And Antarctica is going to be the first region in the planet which is going to be undersaturated with aragonite, and that'll occur in the next 15 years. So we can look at the Antarctic as an early warning system. We can go down there, see what's happening in the next 15 years, see what's happening, and then we can maybe forecast or use those observations to try and see what's happening in the rest of the planet. So this isn't the first time you've been looking at that question down there. So what is some of the other work that you've been doing before now? Previous research has really been focused on looking at how larval stages and processes like fertilisation, embryology and, and larval development are responding to changes in pH or ocean acidification. And so we've actually done a lot of work on Odontasta, looking just to see how the larvae respond. If you, if you take larvae and you put them under, under reduced pH... Do they develop the same? Do they show abnormal development? How slow is development? So we know a lot about you know the kind of those sorts of processes. And um, how susceptible are the larvae to increasing ocean acidification? Actually, funnily enough, Antarctic species are pretty robust, and we've shown that not only in the sea stars but also in, in the, the sea urchin larvae as well. And we think it's maybe because they already are exposed to quite low pHs, particularly during the winter when there's no, there's no primary production, so CO2's not being used, so pH can go up, and then it can plummet in the spring when you get the big blooms, so they're, always, they're already used to quite a big fluctuation in pHs. So maybe they are actually almost pre-adapted to low pH. Is the question with climate change, though, the speed of the change? Yeah, that's one of the main questions, because you can assume that all the species, more or less, will be able to adapt at some point to the changes. But if these changes are too fast before they can adapt, then you're going to lose them, those species. So that's also why we are doing this experiment, because uh, this transgenerational plasticity is the, the faster way of our organism to adapt. One way we're going to link all the changes in the adults is through something called a dynamic energy budget. So we're looking to see how their energy budgets change. And the simplest way you can think of it is that an animal takes in food and then it can use that, use that food for growth, reproduction, for maintenance, etc. And we want to see how that energy budget changes. Uh, if they're under stress, maybe they won't reproduce as much, maybe they'll grow less. But we can, we can model that. There's some, Antonio's an expert in dynamic energy budgets, and so we'll develop some sophisticated models, and then we can start predicting how their energy budgets may change in the future.
as well. Because it's one thing to persist, but, you know, do you persist as a slower-growing individual or do you persist as an individual that doesn't reproduce as much? Yeah, it is a lot about uh, whether the animal is still competitive in their ecosystem. Because if you survive, but then you got to compete with other species that adapt faster or they adapt in better conditions, like they are able to grow faster or they make better use of the resources than you then you are probably be overcompete and out of the picture even if you can't survive. So that's why we are going to focus on see uh, how the, animal, the adults are adapting and what are the conditions. Whether this is, uh, they can adapt sacrificing a little bit of reproduction, a little bit of growth, or they compensate some other way so they can keep being competitive in the environment. These are interesting starfish for another reason, and that is they, they spawn in the middle of winter. So in June or July when it's pitch black in the Antarctic and there's sea ice and you wouldn't think there's anything going on, these animals spawn. And their larvae are in the water column when there's no food at all. So they're probably just surviving on bacteria and probably also energy that their mothers have given them. And they'll have to wait for probably four or five months before that spring bloom arrives. And then they'll start feeding on phytoplankton. But very, very slow metabolic rates, they're hypo metabolic so metabolic rates about a thousandth of what the metabolic rates would be of a tropical counterpart for that's the larval stages but anyway so we all spawn these in the middle of winter we talked about transgenerational responses so if you expose the mothers to say for example warmer conditions is her offspring better adapted to warmer conditions and if it is what's the mechanism so one of the mechanisms could be this process called epigenetics. So she basically, you have the same genetic code, but you just basically express it differently. So it has a different phenotype or different characteristics in the offspring. Or the other way the mother could do it is just produce more robust eggs. So she may have bigger, healthier eggs that have got compounds in them which protect the larvae from temperatures, warming. So that could be the other mechanism. So we're going to we're going to do quite a lot of investigations into the air quality between generations and then we'll do the CB genetic work. So we'll see whether it's just basically some type of genetic basis to it. So how do you test whether there have been epigenetic changes? What you do is you extract the DNA and then you look for what you call methylation patterns. So that's how they can change the expression of the DNA by methylating bases so that they no longer can be expressed. Then we'll get the, uh, the larvae and then we'll, we'll test the resilience of that larvae to things like temperature. And I can show you how we do that in the next room if you like. Please do. We've left the, the room where all the fridges are and we're in the room just beside it and we're looking at heat blocks. So these are large aluminium blocks, they're about a metre long and the aluminium blocks have got holes drilled in them. And one end of the block is attached to a cooler and the other end of the block is attached to a heated water bath. So we can cool one end of the heat block and we can heat the other end and we get this really nice thermal gradient. right? And this could be this could be at zero zero degrees. It could be minus one, and that in there could be at say seven degrees. And then what we do is we will spawn the adults, the starfish, and then we'll we'll put the larvae in little glass jars across that temperature gradient, and we'll see what their thermal window is. So, for example, the larvae might be happy in the coldest temperatures, and then as the temperatures warm, you might find a temperature where they're suddenly the larvae just drop off. So that's their thermal window. So it could be from minus one degree to, say, two degrees. And we've described that for these species already. 
But what we want to do is see if you take a female that's been in plus two degree water for a year and a half, has their offspring, has their thermal window changed? So instead of the larvae dying at two degrees, maybe the larvae can now handle three or four degrees. So we've seen a clear transgenerational response to warming. I think it's fair to say that the most vulnerable part of the life cycle and probably the key part of the life cycle of these marine species is the larval stage. So what we mean we really are interested in knowing what happens to the larval stages because if these larval stages are affected by climate change, then it's really academic what's happened, what happens to the adults because the life cycle is going to be broken by the larval stages. So we really want to be focusing on that most vulnerable stage in the life cycle, which is the embryos and the larvae. And the, those larvae, they determine everything about the population, it determines where the populations are because the larvae get swept around, it determines the number that recruit because of the number that survive, genetic exchange between populations, etc. So the larval stages really are key to the the whole population. And a big thank you to Miles Lemire from the University of Otago and Antonio Garcia from the University of Brussels. Now, Our Changing World has featured many Antarctic stories over the years, and you can find all of them in a specially curated collection. Just head to rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld and scroll to the bottom of the page. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter, at RNZ Science. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.